I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2. Uh, today we're going to be finishing up this uh, Christ hymn that we started, it seems like a long time ago, uh, back in verse 6. <clears throat> and uh, today we'll be looking at verses 9 to 11. But I do want to, of course, read beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through to verse 11. <clears throat> Philippians 2 and verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> because of human sinfulness, uh, we need to be people who are diligent to maintain a high view of God. Um, throughout the Bible, men and women continually underestimate God. I can't Think of an example offhand of someone who had too high of a view of God, who was just thinking too highly of him. It just is not the problem that human beings face. Rather, we tend to underestimate him, have a low view of him. We see this throughout the scriptures, from even Adam and Eve to those who come after them, their offspring. Think of Lamech and his boasting. Even somebody like Moses, who struck the rock, which is not what God told him to do. He failed to uphold God as holy before the people of Israel. We think of the spies of Canaan, who were terrified at the size of the people they saw. God, apparently, in their minds, this, he wasn't able to help them conquer these people. We think of Uzzah. Remember this man who reached out to touch the ark when he should not have? Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who boasted over God when he surrounded Jerusalem. We see this also as we move ahead into the New Testament with people like Ananias and Sapphira, lying to Peter and more importantly to God about their offering. And so you see this low view of God in pagans in the Bible, men like Sennacherib or even Nebuchadnezzar and others. But you also see this creep into even those who are otherwise faithful in God's house, men even like Moses. Now, there are some people who think that too high of a view of God 
And when I say a high view, I'm talking about his understanding of his uh, immensity, his transcendence, his holiness, his greatness, the things that make him, his otherliness, that make him so different and distinct from anyone and everything else. Uh, some think that too high of a view of God in, these, in this way makes him too unrelatable. Uh, you know, that that we, we can't really fully, it makes him too difficult to understand. We'd rather have something, someone that is more like us, that's a little easier for us to relate to. And this impulse to make God more like us, to lower our view of God, is in fact a deadly impulse, sometimes very literally so. In the scriptures. This high view of God that the Bible gives us, notwithstanding, it is true that God has condescended to us in the person of the Son of God to dwell among us, and as the scriptures say, to be like us in every respect except for sin. And we have been looking at this condescension of Christ, this humiliation of Christ, as he took to himself a humanity and came to earth. We saw that and we've spent a couple of weeks going through verses 5 to 8. And as we think about the Son of God coming to earth in the form of a man, the baby in the manger, and then his meekness and mildness as he goes through his days and his earthly ministry, here again, comes a temptation to have too low of a view of Jesus, too low of a view of the Son of God, where we become too selective in our view of him. Yes, of course, Jesus has come with tremendous humility as the last Adam to redeem a people, as we saw, by his obedience unto death. Yes, he was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, He was meek and mild, but we must also realize that he continues even now as we gather and talk and as I preach this, he continues now as mediator, not in a state of humiliation, but rather as the highly exalted one. The humiliation of Christ, the incarnation, is worthy of great contemplation. I don't want to be misunderstood. That is certainly true. The Son of God taking on flesh and becoming man is a mystery and a wonder and is a beautiful part of the scriptures and of salvation's work. It's a great thing to contemplate, but so too is the exaltation of Christ worthy of our, of our contemplation. Without this understanding of Christ as exalted, we are in danger of possessing too low of a view of Jesus Christ. Certainly, this opens the door to it. And so our text today moves from the humility of Christ to the exaltation of Christ. And this is what we want to give our attention to this afternoon is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing I want us to notice is that Christ has been exalted by God as a reward for his obedience. 
Christ has been exalted by God as a reward for his obedience unto death. So verse 9 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him. So at the beginning of verse 9, there's a shift in the subject of the sentence. So uh, back beginning at the end of verse 5, it says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, Jesus, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, and here's the change of subject, God has highly exalted him. So because of Christ's humility, his coming to earth, taking a human nature to himself, obeying the Father in everything, even to the point of death on a cross, therefore God, the Father, has highly exalted him. Christ has not taken it upon himself to be exalted. This has been, he has been exalted by God. He is the agent who does this. Christ has completed his obedience in his state of humiliation when he came as a man and walked about the earth. This included, as we've seen, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago now, but his key, this included his keeping of the law and then receiving and paying the punishment for sinners in his suffering. And now he has had glory conferred upon him. This is all part of the eternal arrangement amongst the members of the Trinity. The Son would become man and in his humility would secure eternal redemption. And upon completion of that work of obedience, the Father would then exalt Christ, the Son, to the highest place. Jesus said in Luke 24 that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory, enter into his glory. So the Old Testament predicted this. The Old Testament speaks, according to Jesus, of the necessity of not only his suffering, but also of his entering into glory. So if we think of the Old Testament and what it teaches of the Messiah as it's looking ahead to the coming of Christ... Certainly it teaches that the Christ would be the suffering servant. We think perhaps most notably of Isaiah 53, which makes this very clear. But also we see throughout the Old Testament that the Messiah would be the son of David. He would be the king, the son of David, who would reign and who would rule forever. So again, we see this throughout the scriptures, God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, throughout the prophets when they speak of the branch of David, the the root of Jesse that would come. We also see this reigning and ruling son of man in the book of Daniel. He's not referred to as a son of David, but the son of man is prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. This is what it says in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory 
and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so it is not enough for Christ to come and to be meek and mild and lowly. It is not enough that he would come and just be the suffering one. Those are all important. Those are all crucial aspects of his work. But he also likewise has to be exalted. For he is the one given eternal, everlasting dominion over all on the earth. The exaltation of the Son includes a number of aspects, or they are often referred to as stages or steps of his exaltation. Philippians 2 here focuses on the name that is above all names and the end times or eschatological acknowledgement of that, and we'll get into that more in a moment. But his exaltation broadly considered includes first Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. Uh, Interestingly, Philippians 2 does not explicitly mention his resurrection here. It is implied, of course, in the fact that he has been highly exalted. But we have to go elsewhere in the scriptures to find the explicit teaching of the resurrection. Of course, we see it in a lot of different places, in the Gospels, of course. We see it in the book of Acts as well as the apostles go out and are witnesses to the resurrected Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 speaks very clearly of Christ's resurrection and appearance to uh, many different people. So it begins with his, his resurrection, his bodily resurrection. Christ's exaltation also includes his ascension into heaven. Think of that, for example, in Acts 1, verses 6 to 11, where he leaves with the clouds and he ascends into heaven. His exaltation includes then his session at God's right hand. That is where he intercedes on behalf of those for whom he offered himself in his life, in his sacrifice. His exaltation then includes also the sending of the Holy Spirit. Remember in John 16, he told his disciples, if I do not go away, then the helper will not come to you. But if I go then I will send him to you. So he ascends to the Father, and then Jesus, in his exalted state, sends the Spirit to be the helper of his people. And then the final stage of his exaltation is his final coming in glory, which will come at the end of the age. Now, not all of these steps are outlined explicitly here in Philippians, but as we look through Throughout the scriptures, we see all of these things are part of Christ's exaltation. Now, this is all important because Christ's exaltation is not simply a return to his former glory that he had before his incarnation. But he continues now in his role as mediator in his exalted state. His exaltation is part of his mediatorial role. He is still the God-man 
who is still now functioning as our mediator. He has moved on from that state of humiliation in which he obeyed the law and then offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners. He has been raised, but he now continues his work of mediation by sitting at the Father's right hand, interceding for his own, sending the Holy Spirit, and waiting until such time as he returns and his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. It is not as if Jesus' body was somehow left behind, his human body left behind when he ascended in Acts 1. It is not as if he just leaves that behind and now just resumes sort of his pre-incarnate state, which wouldn't have had a body. Rather, the Son of God has now been glorified in and through his human nature and his human body, and he remains even now the God-man. He came, as we've seen, in a state of humility, but he now exists in a state of glorification. And so again, the understanding of Christ's two natures, that he is one person who eternally exists with his divine nature, that he shares with the Father and the Spirit, but he came to earth and took to himself a human nature. He has two natures now, divine and human, in one person. This understanding of Christ's two natures, which we've looked at in more detail in previous weeks, this is important to bear in mind for a proper understanding of the exaltation of Christ. Again, in Christ's incarnate humiliation, his divine nature was veiled. We sang about it this morning. We talked about it when we were in verses 5 to 8. His divine nature was veiled such that when he walked the earth and people looked upon him, uh, they, they, they wouldn't have known just by glancing at him that he, he was anything other than just a normal man. John Owen said, Men were so far from looking on him as God that they did not even look on him as a good man. So they didn't even recognize his goodness, let alone the fact that he is actually God in human flesh. This was a state of, of hiddenness. His divine nature was veiled. Again, the Son did not cease being God when he walked the earth, but his divine nature was veiled and not noticeable at a simple glance. But when the work that was required of him in that condition and in that state of humility was complete, he was raised, he ascended, and he was exalted. So here's how Johannes Wolebius, I don't know if I'm saying that correct, but he was a Swiss Protestant scholar, influential on the Westminster Catechisms, if you're familiar with them, this is how he explains it. I think it's helpful. He says, as to Christ's exaltation, in the human nature, he was exalted by the removal of the weakness that he had assumed and by receiving gifts which he had not formerly possessed. He attained both in body and in soul the maximum perfection of which a creature is capable. So that's in the human nature. In the divine nature, he was exalted not by the addition of anything to his divine nature as such, but by the revelation of his majesty, formerly hidden under the form of a servant. 
In other words, what he's saying is his humanity, the humanity of Christ, has reached a glorious perfection that it didn't possess formerly when he was in his state of humiliation. Obviously, in his state of humiliation, he was born as a baby. He had to be fed. He had to grow up. He cried. We see him weep even as a man. Uh, He suffered. He even, in fact, obviously died. But in his state of exaltation, his body has been perfected. It has been glorified, his human body. And his deity in this state of exaltation has not had anything added to it in the exaltation, but it is no longer hidden, but rather it is made manifest. So when Christ came into the world, his state of humiliation was a state of hiddenness, in terms of his deity, but now in his exaltation, he is in a state of revelation in which it is evident precisely who he is. As one theologian, Joel Beakey, writes, the divine glory is openly made known through his humanity, though not by changing his humanity into divinity. Again, he still retains his two natures, but his human nature has been perfected. He remains the God-man, but is now glorified, and this is evident and revealed. If you were to see him now as he is, this would be obvious. So one example I think of this is when the Apostle Paul was confronted by the risen and exalted Lord Jesus. This was after his ascension, you recall, Paul is in in Acts 9 is on his way to Damascus. And you remember the story, of course, when the Lord Jesus risen and glorified appears to him. What does Paul see? He sees a bright light so bright that it blinds him. This This is no longer a state of humiliation, but it is a state of great glory that leaves Paul blinded. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that this was the risen Christ. This was a display of glory, not of humiliation. And so Christ's flesh is perfected and glorified. And the glory that he had before creation with his Father is indeed restored to him in that it is no longer hidden, but is manifest. It is revealed. He has completed his obedience unto death and now continues his role of mediator in this exalted state. And so I hope and trust you can see how important this is if we are to conceive of Christ rightly. He came in humility and he came in weakness, but he has been raised in power and in in glory. He has been exalted by God. And this is the state in which he continues. And this is one reason why I do think pictures and visuals of Jesus are not right, but are wrong. I've said this before. I do think it is a violation of the Ten Commandments. I realize not every Protestant thinks that way. But at the very least, very clearly, they're unhelpful. They fix in our minds an image of Jesus that, frankly, most of the time is pathetic and not close to what he would have looked like. 
They fix in our minds a, a vision of Jesus, a picture of him that is simply not going to be accurate. No matter how good the drawing or illustration might be, it is not going to be accurate to who he truly is, to whom you will answer to and, and come face to face with one day. You're not going to come face to face with some non-intimidating baby. But the exalted and risen Lord Jesus. It's true, he became a baby in the manger. It's part of the mystery and wonder of the incarnation. A thing that is right to celebrate and enjoy. We rejoice in this fact. But he is not presently in a state of infancy. Or if we think of Jesus at any other point throughout his life. His earthly ministry. It's not accurate to what he is now. He is highly exalted. Those pictures and images of Jesus are of somebody that, frankly, people can just dismiss. Well, I'll just deal with him when I get there, I guess, if that's what he is. He just looks like that. Pretty girly looking even in a lot of cases. But the exalted Jesus that Paul speaks of here is not somebody who can be easily dismissed. He is not simply a lowly man, is he? He is highly exalted and done so by God. Second thing, Christ's exaltation includes the reception of the highest name. Christ's exaltation includes the reception of the highest name. Again, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. As I said, these verses don't mention everything there is to say about Christ's exaltation, but they focus in here on this name that Christ has been given and the resulting submission, worship that comes to him. And as we consider the highest name, I want to look at two questions. The first is what name is the exalted name? And second, what does it mean to have the name that is above all names? So first, what name is the exalted name? There's some debate about this. Uh, Some argue that the exalted name is not the personal name Jesus, but the title Lord. So they'll point to the end of verse 11 where the confession is made that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is often then tied to the fact that this word for Lord, which is kurios in Greek here, is often used in the place of the proper name of God, Yahweh, in the New Testament and in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament from before the time of Christ's earthly ministry even. But I don't think that's quite correct nor necessary. Uh, The wording of these verses most naturally seems to communicate that the exalted name is the name of Jesus. It says here, he's been bestowed on him, granted to him, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. 
The name of Jesus was the name that was given to the Son of God when he was born of a woman in Bethlehem. You remember Matthew 1.21 where the angel appears to Joseph and tells him, you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It was the name that Christ possessed throughout this, his state of humiliation. He was Jesus of Nazareth. It was a normal name in one sense. And it is the name that he retains in his exaltation. And part of that exaltation is that that name is now the name that is above all names. So much so that at the end of time, the great confession from every creature will be that Jesus Christ is Lord. So why is the name of Jesus so great? Because this Jesus is in fact Lord. Obviously some in Jesus' earthly ministry and his humiliation, some understood this, rightly called him Lord. But one day the day is coming when everybody will make that confession, which we'll get to more in a moment. So the name that is exalted is the name of Jesus. Second, what does it mean to have the name that is above all names? Well, for one thing, it means that Jesus Christ possesses the highest rank in the universe. So he has gone from the lowest depths of his taking the form of a slave and, and then dying, uh, obeying God, even to the point of death, even death on the cross, the, the, the lowest death of a slave from that lowest position to the highest of heights, to which he possesses the name that is above all names. This is what we see here. It's before Jesus that every knee will one day bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 20, says this. According to the working of his great might, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is, his, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He has been raised far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's being exhaustive in this and above every name that is named. He is exalted to the king, to be king over all the world. The one who possesses the highest authority. All other authorities derive the, author the right authority they have from him. All answer to him. This is what Jesus was communicating to the disciples of the Great Commission when prior to sending them out to make disciples, he gives this important piece of information when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority is his. And on that basis, he turns and says, go make disciples of all nations. 
Jesus is the king from Psalm 2 that we read about earlier. The king that Yahweh, that God has installed in Zion. His son to whom all rules answer. His son who will receive the nations as his heritage. So he's the highest rank and highest place of authority. But I would also add another aspect of this highest name. It is now the name of Jesus by which human beings are saved from their sins, those who are. Again, it was a low and despised name, Jesus of Nazareth, unimpressive Nazareth, belonged to this man who was scorned and rejected by men, ultimately crucified. But now this stone that was rejected by the builders has become the cornerstone of salvation. And it is the name of Jesus by which we must be saved. Listen to Acts 4. When Peter and John had been arrested and then questioned by the high priest and others. Verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, they had healed this man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's faith in Jesus Christ is the means by which sinners receive God's gracious salvation. And there is no other way. And there is no other name. It is the highest name. Jesus Christ is the name, is the person who is preached and proclaimed throughout the world. The name of Jesus is the name in which we are called to trust and to entrust ourselves to. There is no other way to God. There is no other way to be forgiven your sin. There is no other salvation but through Jesus Christ alone. He is the name above all names. Jesus is exalted to the highest place with the name above all. And there are just probably endless implications from this. For starters, obviously, it is him whom you are to trust for your salvation and him alone. Every man, woman, and child has been born and brought into this world a sinner and has committed sins in thought and word and indeed violations of God's law and holy standard. And we will one day die and after that comes the judgment Stand before God. 
And if we are to stand before him in our sins, we will most certainly be punished for those sins. We will most certainly be cast into the lake of fire, the scriptures say. Eternity in hell. Such is the nature of our sins, such is the nature of our crimes, such is the nature of God's holiness and greatness, that that's what we would deserve. And yet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, has come in human form, in human flesh, to take up the obligations of sinners by obeying God's law in the place of sinners, which we have not done, and then taking the penalty that sinners deserve upon himself and suffering the penalty that sinners deserve. And he has satisfied God's wrath for sinners. And he has risen from the dead. He has made full payment to God for this, quenching God's wrath. This offering has been accepted by God, evident in the fact that he has been raised and exalted now with the name above all names. And the only way to be saved and forgiven is to turn from your sin, to confess and acknowledge your sin to God, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to place your faith in him alone. That Jesus has the highest name above all names. That he has the highest rank and place in the universe. Is also a reminder that he is the one with supreme authority over this world which is important for us to remember at all times, and particularly in this day of increasing tyranny. It is to Jesus Christ that every authority is ultimately accountable. That includes our governmental, civil authorities, every authority. It is the Lord Jesus who rules this universe. It is the Lord Jesus who determines that which is good and that which is evil. And it is to the Lord alone that your conscience is to be bound. When another authority seeks to bind your conscience to something that is not contained in God's word or is contrary to God's word, or when they're outside of their sphere of authority that's been delegated to them, then you're free. Your conscience is to be bound truly by God alone. Through his word, if I seek to force laws upon you that are not contained in scripture, that are outside of my authority as a pastor, then you're free. You need not obey. I think we understand that. This applies likewise to other spheres of authority. Man loves to make up so-called truths, and make all manner of bold assertions, but we test all by our Savior's word. And it is to him that we submit ourselves above all. Further, I referenced Matthew 28, when Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth is mine, therefore go and make disciples. We have warrant for what we do as a church from the king of all kings. And it matters zero what anyone else says to us about it. That's a fact. We have warrant to go out and proclaim Christ to people because the, the one who has authority over everything told us to do it. 
So somebody says no to this, and we are under zero obligation to listen to them. And that includes all that is necessary in part of evangelizing and making disciples. That includes the authority and permission to gather and to worship the Lord on the Lord's day as we are now. We don't get that permission from other authorities. We get it from Christ himself, the highest of all authorities. And so if someone wants to come along and tell us we're not allowed to do that, or we need to put in all these extra requirements in place, we simply are not bound by that. If man, whoever he is, says you can meet, but only under certain conditions, or you can't meet, or you must wear this, or you must discriminate, you must have a certain medical procedure or a vaccine. This is happening increasingly, and Quebec is just starting this now. If you want to worship, you have to have a vaccine, they say. If you want to gather in the Lord's church. Or if they come to us and tell us, you must not teach that homosexuality is a sin to be repented of. This is becoming law next month here. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. When they insist, thou shalt not try to convert a homosexual or a transgender person, we simply are not bound by that. We are bound by the king of all kings and his word. The king of all has purchased us who trust in him, and we have warrant for our mission from him. This includes the authority to preach Christ and to call sinners, whatever their pet sins may be, to repentance and faith. We hold forth the crucified and risen Savior to man. We proclaim him as the risen and coming judge and coming king. We also proclaim him as the gracious king in whom there is salvation, the only one in whom there is salvation. Thirdly and briefly, Christ's exaltation will one day be acknowledged by all. One day everyone's going to make this confession. Here's what it says. Again, just we'll read the whole thing. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no debate about whether you or everyone else is going to declare this one day. It's going to happen. It's a matter of whether you'll be bowing on that day as a willing, joyful subject or as a defeated foe who's forced to make this true confession because it will at that time be clear and obvious and unmistakable. This text is looking ahead to Christ's glorious return and final judgment. It is not suggesting that all are going to bow and confess as redeemed people as though everybody's going to be saved and enjoying this moment here. 
But this is consistent with the rest of Scripture that teaches us instead that Christ's enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. At this time, they will be put underneath his feet, defeated. And they will be made to acknowledge his supreme lordship. Again, the exaltation of Christ is a state of revelation. And his glory and grandeur is evident and is known now. And when he returns as conquering and triumphant king, all will bow. When it says here that every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will make this acknowledgement, it's probably best to take this as a reference to everyone everywhere. A reference to his total dominion as opposed to trying to splice it up into three different groups and who are all these people. Although some do see this as referencing spirits in heaven, men on earth, and the dead in Sheol, which is possible. But either way, this is saying that Christ will be universally recognized. The bowed knee obviously pictures appropriate homage, respect that is paid to this exalted king of all King who is Lord. And this is precisely what every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be no question on that day. Now as as Paul writes this, there's a clear allusion here to Isaiah 45, 23. I read that, we read that at the very start of the service. But in that chapter... Yahweh, the Lord, is declaring that he alone is God. He declares that he alone is the one who saves. In verse 22 of Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. And in verse 23 it says, To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Or, as the Septuagint says, every tongue shall confess to God. In Isaiah, it is clearly showing that Yahweh alone is God and Savior, the one before whom men will bow and the one whom men will acknowledge. It is monotheistic to the core. And now Paul is alluding to this, Isaiah 45, and applying it to the exalted Son of God. Every knee shall bow and tongue confess, namely that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so here again, Jesus is equated to God, even as he is distinguished from the Father. Paul's Trinitarian theology is coming out once more. The Father and the Son, though distinct in their personhood, are co-equal in their substance or essence. Isaiah 45 and the chapters that surround it so clearly express the singularity of God. That this statement here in Philippians 2 would be utterly blasphemous if Jesus was not Yahweh, if he was not God. But Paul is showing Isaiah 45, 23 will find its ultimate fulfillment when every knee bows before the Son of God and acknowledges that Jesus is Lord, which will in turn give glory to the Father. When Jesus was here in his humiliation, few recognized him for who he was. But now, the God-man has been exalted, and one day this will be seen very plainly and confessed by all. He is God the Son incarnate. 
He is Jesus who is Lord. So again, how crucial is it to make sure our view of Jesus is high enough? He must not, he cannot be just flippantly and easily dismissed. And this exalted status, this exaltation, makes, frankly, his mercy all the more remarkable. That the sovereign over the universe extends mercy to sinners and invites sinners to freely receive salvation by faith in his name. In kindness, he commands all men everywhere to repent and to turn to him. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The King of glory, the exalted, risen Christ, is merciful. And yet, we are to be warned that there is coming a day when time will run out. And when it will be a time when this King will return in glory and to bring judgment. Be sure that you will not fall under that just judgment by putting your faith in Christ now, before that time, before that day, while there is time to do as Psalm 2 says, to kiss the Son lest He be angry forever and you perish in the way. And then that psalm closes, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And for all who do take refuge in Him, that time when every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord will be a glorious moment as our champion and savior receives the glory that he is rightly due and when all enemies are put under his feet when justice will be fully and completely established in the new creation As I close this, I want to encourage you to stand firm in this confession that Jesus is Lord. This is not a catchy phrase for us or a a hashtag or some social media thing. It is a basic yet very profound confession of Christianity, of the Christian faith. Our allegiance is ultimately to Jesus Christ. We are not saved by allegiance to Jesus Christ. We are saved by his grace through faith. But we now belong to him. He is Lord. And we acknowledge that. And this confession that he is Lord is a declaration that is less and less tolerable to our increasingly pagan country. But we need not fear this, as upsetting as as it is. This is a good and true confession. This confession that Jesus is Lord has carried many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world now, in recent days, and throughout history, through various trials and dark days. And indeed, one day everyone 
will acknowledge that this confession you make now gladly is indeed a true one. That God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do make this confession now by your grace that Jesus Christ is Lord. We rejoice that he has come with a tremendous humility. To do what we could not do. To obey your law and then to take the punish, our punishment upon himself. To be obedient to the point of death on the cross. Father, we know as your word declares he did this not for his own sake, but for sinners, for us, for his church. Father, we have no other hope, no other hope of salvation than Christ. So we praise you for this work of God that is nothing we deserve. Father, I pray that we would remain firm in our conviction that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord in the highest place. I pray that this, it would be a joy to us to open Christ's word and devour it, to read it, to study it, to seek to understand it and know it, to read the words of our King, the words of our Savior. Father, we, we, I pray that you would just bless your people with these truths and encourage our spirits to stand in, in firmness in these days. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.